Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 to 35, the parable of the unmerciful servant. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had to be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged and I will pay you back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured and until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder if... Um Colonel Gaddafi had not threatened the people of Benghazi with the words, for those who resist there will be no mercy or compassion. I wonder whether the response from the UN would have been quite so unanimous as it was. After all, when President Obama justified the involvement of the US, he said, we cannot stand idly by when a tyrant tells his people that there will be no mercy. Mercy and purity are the themes of this morning's sermon as we continue our series on the Beatitudes, uh, part of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus gathered his disciples on a hillside and taught them about the kingdom of heaven. How do you become a part of that kingdom? What does it mean to live as those who belong to it? And the Beatitudes are marked by the word blessed. Each one begins, blessed are. And by that it's meant more than simply happy are. It's more a sense of privileged are those who display these certain qualities because it means that they belong to the kingdom of heaven and the promises that they can expect to receive are far greater than anything this world can offer. Well this morning we're looking at a blessing uh, 5 and 6 which you'll find in verse 7 and 8 of Matthew 5 if you'd like to turn to that as we keep that open on page uh, 968. 
And although we've been looking at these Beatitudes in pairs, we shouldn't forget that they do all hang together. It's not a sort of pick-and-mix approach. I'll have a bit of that, uh, but I'll leave that for somebody else. These are all qualities that all Christians should be yearning to demonstrate in their lives. We're going to start with the first one, though. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The first question I'd like to ask is, what do you understand by the word mercy or merciful? I did a quick search on the computer and um, came up in the Bible with 155 hits. Um, 38 of those were in the Psalms, interestingly enough. If you think about it, a lot of the Psalms are marked by those cries of mercy to God. Think of uh, David in Psalm 51 when he acknowledges his sin um, and he cries out, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Of a lot of the other references to mercy, 26 were in the Gospels. Many of these were people crying out to Jesus to heal them. And the blind men, you may, may remember, called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, they recognised they had no right to be healed, but they were appealing to Jesus' mercy. They hoped he would have pity on them. But Jesus also uses this word a number of times when he was teaching people about what mercy means. And there are three key teachings I'd like to mention here this morning, which are all slightly different, but are all linked. The first comes a few chapters later, if you'd like to flick over to, to Matthew chapter 9, um, verse 9. This is the calling of Matthew, Matthew being one of the hated tax collectors. And uh, it says there, let me just read a few verses from verse 9 onwards. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What I think is going on here is that Jesus, as he often did, was criticising the, the Pharisees for their self-righteousness. The Pharisees were good at keeping the rules. Um, they were good at doing everything outwardly, but... As they did that, they would be tempted to be quite pleased with themselves and um, felt almost they deserved to be saved rather than need to seek God's mercy. And the point about the tax collectors and sinners coming and eating with Jesus is that they were spiritually needy people. They recognised that the, the only way they could be saved if, was, if Jesus was to show them mercy. So in this sense, what is merciful, it's to recognise that you are no more worthy than anybody else. To recognise you need Jesus' mercy just as much as the next person. And I wonder if there are people we look at and think, well, look, there's just no way they would ever become a Christian. Just look at their lifestyle. Um, you know, we make judgments about people, don't we? But we have no right to do that. Just over a week ago, we saw the death of Elizabeth Taylor, somebody who had had... Um, Seven husbands, all sorts of uh, relationship and, and health issues. And I wonder if you looked at her and thought, pretty hopeless case. Or did you actually look at her and say, Lord, have mercy on her? What would Jesus have said to Elizabeth Taylor? 
Well, interestingly enough, he did meet somebody like her at, at a well. He met a Samaritan woman who herself had been married five times and she was living with somebody. And as Jesus spoke with her, she began to see her failings. She began to see the mess she was in, her need for the mercy of Jesus. Another occasion when Jesus taught about mercy was the um, well-known parable that um, Jesus told of the Good Samaritan. If you'd like just to turn briefly to, to Luke chapter 10 with me. We're going to be flicking that a little bit this morning. Um, Luke chapter 10, verse 25, that's on page 1042 of the Church Bibles. And the context of this parable was an expert in the law asking Jesus, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It says he knew this summary of the commandments. It says, um, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. But it says he wanted to justify himself and asked, who is my neighbour? And that's when Jesus told this parable. I won't read the the parable out now, but um, I'm sure it'll be familiar to many of you. But just look at the different reactions of the three people in this story. Each of one of them, um, we're told, saw this man who'd been beaten up and left half dead in the street. And we're told two of them passed by on the other side. But when the Samaritan saw this man, it says here, he took pity on him. Verse 33. He had compassion on him, in other words. And at the end of telling this, this parable, Jesus says in verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Mercy here is pity, it's compassion, uh, and it's a pity for somebody in need. Here it is, a physical need. And uh, whilst we may say, well, clearly people's spiritual needs are more important than their physical needs, Jesus makes it clear that to be merciful means to have compassion on those who are in any any kind of need. We live in the physical world. A lot of our needs are physical needs, and so we should be concerned about people's physical, material needs. Now you might say, what is the connection between the incident of Jesus going to eat with sinners and the conversation he had with Pharisees there and this parable about the the Good Samaritan? Well, I think that in both cases, the the Jewish leader's lack of mercy was because they were so engrossed in themselves. In the first instance, they just felt so superior, they wouldn't want to have anything to do with these, uh, these sinners. In in this instance here, we're not told why they didn't stop, but there was obviously something more important to them. It may have been that they felt they had something uh, more important to go to. They were in a rush. They didn't have time to stop and help this this man. It may be their own safety that they prized. They were worried that if uh, they stopped and helped, the same might happen to them. But either way, they put their own needs first. And if you think about it, what is the main reason why we may not help those in need? Is it that we don't have compassion? Or is it that we don't have time? I think unless you were very hardened, it would um, be difficult to walk past somebody who's just been beaten up and not feel a sense of compassion or pity. Being made in the image of God means that we're made with that sense of, of compassion. But it's easy to feel compassion in many different situations and not feel able to help because of different reasons. You know, ultimately, though, it does come down to a decision. What is more important? Is it this person's needs 
Or is it my needs? Is it my, my safety, my financial security? Is it my meeting I've got to get to? And a whole host of other reasons that may stop us helping somebody. Now, I don't want to, um, for us to beat ourselves up over all the missed chances that we've had to, to show compassion or mercy. Um, I don't want us to feel that oh, maybe we're not really a Christian because there are times when we missed out on that opportunity. It's actually not a bad thing to feel guilty. You know, if we've missed an opportunity to show God's love, then that is better than not to feel anything at all. But take that guilt and, and use it to grow in your sense of compassion and mercy in an active way rather than just a passive way. The other example of mercy I wanted to mention was the parable of the unmerciful servant that um, Isabel read for us. Let's just turn to that one in Matthew chapter 18. Verse 21 onwards. And as with most of Jesus' parables, he tells it in response to a question. And this time the question is from Peter, one of his disciples, who asks, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? There's this one servant who owes his master 10,000 talents, a a huge amount of money, um, begs his master, be patient with me. And we're told his master took pity on him. He cancelled the debt and he let him go. And and this is not... um, You know, HSBC renegotiating your mortgage, maybe extending the term to make it easier for you to repay. This is actually your whole debt being being wiped out. You know, he's now debt-free. What a huge relief that must have been to him. What is he going to do? What is he going to celebrate? Well, what does he do? He goes and finds another servant who owes him a few quid and he has him chucked in prison. And it's no wonder when his master finds out, he calls him in and he says, verse 32, you wicked servant, I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Mercy here is about having pity, but it's about having pity on those who have wronged us, those who are in our debt. And the way we can have pity on them is by forgiving them. And in many ways, this is the hardest one. You know, we may think, well, I can cope with not looking down on someone, not being judgmental. I can cope with helping people in physical need. But when it comes to forgiveness, you know, sometimes that is just too hard. You know, what about those, those extreme cases? What about the husband or wife who's been unfaithful? What about the, the financial con man who's tricked you out of your, your life savings? What about that, that drunk driver who's knocked over your child? But with forgiveness, it's not just the extreme cases we find. It's often some of the easy cases, isn't it? Maybe you've had a disagreement with somebody. Maybe somebody's put you down in front of others. Maybe somebody's betrayed a confidence. You thought you could trust them. And you're still holding on to that grudge. Yes, some of these offences will be harder to forgive than others. But the solution, um, in many ways, is the same for all of them. And it's acknowledging the mercy that we have been shown by God. The fact that we don't deserve to to speak to him, let alone one day see him, and yet that privilege is ours. Now you may say, well, hold on a minute. If we go back to this, um, this beatitude, doesn't it say here, 
Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Isn't it a sense that we will only receive mercy if we've proved ourselves first? Well, no, that, the beauty is that's not how they're read. It's not a sense of this is a, an entry test into the kingdom. This is actually a badge of membership of those who are in the kingdom. How do we know who the Christian is? Is it the one who's carrying a Bible or wearing a cross? No, it's the one who shows mercy because he has known that mercy himself. Where else would you want to forgive somebody if you hadn't known that forgiveness yourself? You wouldn't know just how liberating and freeing it is. But it's also a promise that you will continue to be shown mercy by God in this life, but also on that day of judgment. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Let's come on to the second beatitude and and more briefly. um, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The word heart is a key word in the Bible. It's... um, it's key because it describes people as they really are. Without all the pretense, without all the masks that we try and put on to make ourselves seem more attractive to, to others, the heart describes our inner thoughts, our inner feelings. And the reason that God has no time for appearances or masks is that he can see exactly what is in the heart of each one of us. The reason given for the flood in, in Genesis 7 was... It says, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. When Samuel was choosing one of the sons of Jesse to be king of Israel, he thought, well, it must be Eliab that God had wanted because just look at, the, look at his appearance. It's got to be this guy. But God said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Many places in the Gospels it says Jesus, knowing their thoughts, then carries on to say something to them. And the people he reserved his harshest criticism for were religious hypocrites. They began because he knew what was really going on in their hearts. When they were trying to to impress other people, he knew what they were thinking. Listen to what he said in Matthew 23. He said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. As people, as human beings, we are so focused on outward appearance because we're worried about what people will think of us. We want to keep up appearances. Just imagine if everybody knew the thoughts of your heart. It would be bad enough being on a big brother and having everything you do on camera, but imagine if everyone also knew everything you were thinking, that your thoughts appeared in a little thought bubble above your head, like on the screen here. If you can't read the caption there, um, in the thought bubble... It says, I hate this job. The caption reads, Johnson, if you're going to have negative thoughts, I suggest you get rid of that thought balloon. The reason it's such a scary prospect is that our thoughts are not pure. If they were pure, we would have nothing to worry about. We would be ashamed about. Jesus says, blessed are the pure 
in heart. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, how it started with that conversation about what God expects from us. It said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. Love your neighbour as yourself. That is to be pure in heart. To worship God as number one in your life. The trouble is there are always things contending for that number one place, things that make us impure. And rather than deal with those issues, often we just take comfort from the fact that, well, you know, our outward behaviour is acceptable. People will still respect us. And so we attempted to ignore the state of our hearts. I've mentioned this book before. It's called um, Shepherding a Child's Heart by um, Ted Tripp. And in it he mentions um, the passage I quoted where Jesus denounces the Pharisees as uh, washing the outside of the cup while the inside remains uh, dirty. And he says, yet this is what we often do in child rearing. We demand changed behaviour and never address the heart that drives the behaviour. What must you do in correction and discipline? You must require proper behaviour. God's law demands that. You cannot, however, be satisfied to leave the matter there. You must understand and help your child understand how his straying heart has resulted in wrong behaviour. And the example he takes is um, the classic example of two children playing together and sooner or later you hear the fighting, you walk in and what do you do? The first question you normally ask is, who had it first? Who had it first? And of course, when you ask that question, and uh, you know, we, we all do that, um, what you're appealing to is the children's sense of justice. You know, the one who had it first deserves to hang on to it. But of course, when you look at the heart issues going on there, what is going on is actually two children uh, are sinning. One is saying, I got it first, I'm going to hold on to it. The other one is saying, actually, I want it. So both the children want something for themselves to satisfy them. But as a heart issue, surely what you want to encourage them is to look after the needs of the other. Ted Tripp's nephew, Paul Tripp, wrote another book called Age of Opportunity, looking at the issues to do with parenting teenagers. Um, And for for teenagers, the biggest issue to to the challenge to a pure heart is, is more often than not, peer pressure. Um, The need to be accepted. But it's easy to think of peer pressure as something that just affects teenagers, when in actual fact, it affects everybody. You know, 20, 30, 40 years later, it still affects us here this morning. We're trying to impress our peers. And the ways in which we impress them may may change. Um, It may be through our children now, maybe through our grandchildren, through their achievements. And the ironic thing about the the issues of our hearts is that we ourselves are often blind to them. God obviously can see them. And there will be those who God has given the gift of discernment who can see into our hearts. The question is, do we want those issues of our hearts to be revealed? Do we want to deal with them? Or are we happy just to take comfort in our outward behaviour? And if we want to deal with them, then we need to, to ask God to reveal them to us. And he may do that through, through somebody else, in which case we need to remain open to correction. But we know that we're opening ourselves up to something which may be quite painful. But in all our efforts to become pure, to rid ourselves of impurity, we shouldn't forget that to become Totally pure is impossible. It's impossible without the work of Jesus Christ. He was pure. He was the only one who's perfect. The lamb who was sacrificed for us. 
the one who bore our sins so that we could be cleansed from sin, so that we could be, become pure in God's sight. And if you're someone here this morning who's not yet confessed your sin, not yet asked Jesus for forgiveness, can I urge you to do that? Because if you do, you will not only experience the freedom, the peace that comes from being forgiven, but you will receive the promise that this beatitude contains. And this is not just one promise, but you will receive the promises in all of these beatitudes. Just look, look down at uh, Matthew 5, those few verses again, and see these amazing promises. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For they will be comforted. For they will inherit the earth. For they will be filled. For they will be shown mercy. For they will see God. For they will be called sons of God. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As I finish, the promise that is held out there to us is you will see God. And I wonder how much that promise fills you with excitement. If you are a Christian here, I'm sure you look forward to living in the new heaven and the new earth where there will be no more pain or suffering or sadness or death. But do we look forward to going there because we will see God? What difference would it make to your enjoyment of heaven if God wasn't there? To see God is to be in awe of his full glory, to to see his perfect purity, his holiness, his love, to see him face to face. What a promise that is.